standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 172 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I keep losing stuff and it's driving me mad. Top losses this week. My hammer. How do you lose a hammer? I don't know. I mean, it's in my house somewhere. I don't take my hammer out with me. So it's in my house somewhere. You have an I'll area for tools and, you know. Oh, yeah, toolbox. It's not in there. Mm. Um, my earphones, my favourite earphones, mm. which ha- also had one of these things attached to the bottom of it. Which I can't tell you how many of yeah. those I've lost for the new fucking stupid things that go into iPhones. And also an entire box full of saw bits from a jigsaw. Gone. Don't know where it is. Have you lent them to anyone? I don't know. I don't think so. I think I would remember that. Oh, well, I don't know. I put all that stuff in a drawer. Yeah. I mean, it amazes me how I manage to lose things when I live in a relatively small flat that's got no covered space whatsoever. And yet, I think I left my earphones at the hospital, if I'm honest, but it's just annoying. I'm Jen Offord and I had been 39 for two days before I put my back out. Did you put your back out stealing my hammer? Yes. No, I put my back out <laughs> lifting my child. So that was quite annoying. Oh. And I cried because it hurt so much. And she sat there and went, <laughs> and laughed because she thought it was funny, the way I was crying. Thanks. Thanks, Squeaks. Appreciate it. One day, Jen, she'll be carrying you around. That's how I console myself with all these ailments <laughs> I've had since she was born. She doesn't know, but uh, she's in charge of the commune for me and all my childless friends. Anyway, coming up, I chat to journalist Kat Lister about her new book, The Elements, a memoir about becoming a widow aged 35. I'm talking to she who has the authority, Jackie Weaver, about her podcast and her new book, You Do Have the Authority Here. She was lovely. I'm excited to hear that. In this week's Journey Off the Blocks, I'll be talking brand new football tournaments as well as the unstoppable rise of Fallon Sherrick. That's darts, Hannah, if you remember her. I do Mm. remember Fallon Sherrick. And in Rated or Dated, we're watching 1971's Bedknobs and Broomsticks and asking all the important questions, such as, why don't they just brush that cat? And, what's that got to do with my knob? (laughs) But first, what's that got to do with my swollen bollocks? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. No, we don't understand how Nadine Dory's got a new job either. Oh, God. That woman. Why do they keep giving her jobs? Do you think it's because they just want some women there? There's got to be better women. There's got I mean, to there be. has got to be better women, but I'm wondering whether, you know, she's relatively compliant and... She is nuts. Like absolutely oh, I bonkers. I it it is dumbfounding, dumbfounding. Where where's he gone? The prick. What's his name? Dowden. Where's he gone? I don't know. He's not the foreign secretary now, is he? I don't know. No, no. I don't know. I've given up my attention <laughs> to what's going on. I've given up. So Hannah, how are you feeling about Facebook recently? I think I've been on it about once in five years. Yeah, I don't use it too much these days, but that's more because a lot of the people I befriended 14 years ago are actually quite annoying. (laughs) It's not not because of any kind of moral stand. Although I do still use WhatsApp and Instagram pretty regularly and remain unnerved by how much the latter seems to know about me. Yeah. Mm, Microphones everywhere. 
So we were having that conversation, weren't we? And it tried to sell you Mickey's wallpaper. Yeah, yeah. Really creepy. Really creepy. Anyway, Facebook knows a lot, apparently, as was revealed in a series of articles in the Wall Street Journal last week. For example, according to leaked internal documents, Facebook knows the psychological harm that Instagram, which is owned by the company, does to teenagers and specifically teen girls. So, while Facebook has faced a number of claims in recent years that it promotes a whole host of psychological problems ranging from low self-esteem to suicidal thoughts, the leaked documents written by the company's own researchers actually state, we, Instagram, make body issues worse for one in three teen girls. They have actually quantified Mm. it. (laughs) But wait, there's more. Teens blame Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression, and this reaction was unprompted and consistent across all groups. Great. Another internal report said that aspects of Instagram exacerbate each other to create a perfect storm. Aspects of Instagram sounds like a really shit band. It does. Let's start it. Let's let's have that one. Meanwhile, research had found that among users who reported suicidal thoughts, 13% of UK and 16% of US users said they could trace them back to Instagram. This is in, obviously, direct contrast to previous attempts by the company to downplay such claims, with Instagram boss Adam Masseri stating in May that the impact of the app on the mental health of teenagers was likely to be, and I quote, quite small. What was he basing that on? (laughs) Not that research, but, you know, apparently there's been a lot. So in response to this, Instagram's head of public policy, Karina Newton, wrote a blog post last week defending the company. And she said that the story focused on a limited set of findings that casts them in a negative light. She added that the research on whether social media is good or bad for people is mixed. It can be both before highlighting the steps that Instagram is taking to alleviate any negative impacts. It would be impossible to cast those findings in a good light, wouldn't it? Well, I suppose unless you say that two in three people aren't being, like, driven to suicidal thoughts by Instagram. Yeah, I suppose uh, I, I suppose you could say that. That's. I don't think that is positive. I don't think saying, you know, anything that has a percentage, like, as high as a third... It's it being bad, really, really it? bad for it's not great. Is, is is really bad. Yeah. Plus, I mean, you got to add on top of that that there will be people who Instagram is having a really horrible effect on, but they just don't realise it yet. Yeah, I, I mean, I always come back to like, even as a grown up, you can be on it for like five minutes and be like, I'm a slug. Uh, so like... It's one of the reasons I we've had this conversation that I don't do Instagram yeah. because I just think that. While everybody, like, says, you know, it's just nice, gentle, pretty pictures kind of place. And lots of people have said that to me. And I understand that in comparison to Twitter, it probably feels like that. I do think that, and this comes from someone who doesn't wear makeup, has never applied a filter. And has actually had filters applied to my face by other people in the photograph and disliked it Mm. because I feel like that's not what I look like and it's not a genuine thing. But I'm 47 and I have like the constitution of an ox, whereas a 17 year old Hannah would have hated that world. Really hated it. Yeah. It worries me Mm. a lot. Yeah. So Jen, as you know, there's a lot of super interesting and important things going on in the world. So I'd like to take a moment to talk about something vital Mm -hmm. and congratulate the media leading scientists and politicians from around the world 
for taking the time to talk about it. I say it, I mean them. Because, of course, I'm talking about Nicki Minaj's cousin's friends, Swollen Balls. Wow. The drama started last week when Minaj tweeted this, quote, My cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. I'm kind of surprised she used the word testicles, but there we go. More of this tweet. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're comfortable with your decision, not bullied. I mean, there's so much going on there, it's difficult to know where to start. But here goes. Is it possible that a man looking down at his flaccid dick would rather blame it on a vaccine than admit that sometimes it happens to all blokes? Is it possible the swelling is a symptom of something else that merely happened at the same time as the man was vaccinated? Are the swollen balls and the impotence even linked? What sort of woman is ready to say in sickness and in health, but changed her mind when the circumference of her fiancé's balls went over a certain measurement? What is that measurement? Exactly how swollen are they? And finally, and probably most importantly, how much can this story be trusted given it's been filtered through Nicki Minaj's cousin and Minaj herself? I'm guessing that the overwhelming majority of people would ask many, if not all these questions themselves, have a little snigger and go on with the rest of their lives. Because guess what? Most grown-ups don't make medical decisions based on anecdotal, likely apocryphal stories from R&B singers. But hang on, here comes Dr Anthony Fauci, Sadiq Khan and the whole English-speaking media (laughs) to leap on the story and make it an international incident rather than a daft tweet. It also meant it dragged on in an increasingly unedifying way. And what's my problem with that? Well, it's twofold. Firstly, I think these people have way better things to be doing with their time, especially in the case of Trinidad and Tobago Health Minister Terence Dayal Singh, who denounced the tweet after apparently trying to locate the man in question. I mean, for fuck's sake, we're in a global pandemic. Surely to shit, wandering the islands looking for Mr Big Balls isn't a priority. (laughs) But secondly, if you don't want people to make life decisions based on health tips by Nicki Minaj, stop behaving like her opinion carries any weight at all. Now, I've got to say, although this is utterly, utterly ridiculous and I agree with everything you've said, it did result in one of the best things ever happening, which was... Is it the health minister of Trinidad and Tobago looking for a man with swollen testicles? No, it's Professor Chris Whitty being asked at a press conference about it and him actually taking it seriously and going, I think she should be ashamed of herself and saying nothing more. And then Nicki Minaj retweeted a clip of Professor Chris Whitty saying this about her and said something like, I think he's dissing me, but yes, cute accent though, or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, this is the best thing ever. What I find quite interesting though is if you listen to the last sentence of that tweet, Mm. of her tweet, so just pray on it Mm. and make sure you're comfortable with your decision, not bullied. That's actually an incredibly good piece of advice if you're talking about almost anything else except what she's tweeting about. If she was saying that to young girls about whether or not they have sex, 
with someone, you know, we'd all be going banging our hands together and going, come on, Nicki Minaj. So the funny thing is, she's almost there, but yeah. I spent a long time yesterday walking around a park with my best friend Vera talking about like various Twitter storms over the last year and being like, it was grounded in something. It was grounded in something. <laughs> yeah. There was a route to it that made some sense, but... So, yeah, I think um, 280 characters is very hard to be nuanced, but it's really hard to be nuanced when you're making something up about the size of someone's testicles, isn't it? So I don't think she is making that up. The balls? I don't think it's her that's making it up. I think this is one of these apocryphal stories Oh, I don't think she's made it up. I think someone's mm. told her it and she's decided she's not going to challenge it. I think this is all stemmed from one guy who couldn't get it up. And then just thought, oh my God, how am I going to like protect my manhood? I'll make something up. Yeah. I would have interrogated that story a bit more before, yeah, putting it out to the world. I think what it is, is it's obviously like it has reaffirmed Minaj's worldview that the vaccine is bad, hasn't it? Well, quite. Would be my guess. But obviously I'd have to ask her about it. Let's get her on. Nikki, are you Let's listening? see if we can. Actually, I want to talk to Mr. Big Balls. Yeah. Hannah, would you like some good news other than Chris Whitty and Nicki Minaj and all yeah, that stuff? Yeah, please. Okay, well, a big congratulations to Michaela Cole, who made history this week. She became the first black woman to win the Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Limited or Anthology Series or Movie. That is a long category title. Yeah. For I May Destroy You. An award perhaps made all the sweeter by the fact that it wasn't even nominated for a single Golden Globe. That was outrageous. It was. And actually, if you look at the list of awards for what is patently one of the best things I've seen on TV in years, it's actually received nowhere near the number of plaudits it should have, I think. No. In her acceptance speech, Cole said, Write the tale that scares you, that makes you feel uncertain, that isn't comfortable, I dare you. Visibility these days seems to somehow equate to success. Do not be afraid to disappear from it, from us, for a while, and see what comes to you from the silence. And this reference to Cole's own experience of sexual assault, which inspired the series, was followed by her dedicating the award to every single survivor of sexual assault. Good for her. I mean, sometimes I think not winning, like you say, those massive snubs, it puts her in some good company Mm. there's plenty of things that are brilliant that nobody has ever or plenty of television programs that nobody has ever bothered to acknowledge i mean the wire one really i don't think the wire ever even got nominated for an emmy at all even by the fifth series when people started like being interested in it no i'm pretty sure i might be wrong i know that deadwood only got Deb Wood got one Golden Globe nomination for Al Swearingen, which is Ian McShane. Mm. Got one for Ian McShane, never won it. Yeah, loads of really, really good television was just totally ignored by the Emmys. I mean, they love the crown, but of course they do because they used to love Downton Abbey. Mm. It's not about the quality of the drama. It's about just the old-fashioned Britishness of it. That's the thing. I like the crown. It's very easy to watch, but it is trash (laughs) there's there's nothing wrong with trash i watch all of the soap operas as you know but it's not like really critically good stuff is it no but it's just they've been nominated for like quite a lot of stuff but just won very much of it but to not even get a nomination for the golden globes is like 
bollocks, isn't it? Particularly when you keep saying that people are are keen to diversify. Uh, diversify. Mm. You're like, that is just a slam dunk, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, she is a woman and black. Yeah. I mean, and it's not like... It's not even tokenistic, face... it's actually good. It's exactly that. You're not going to face any accusations <laughs> yeah. that you're doing it in a tokenistic way. It, yeah, it's mad. Anyway, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask... When is a choice not a choice? Answer, when a woman is making it and it's about pregnancy. Mm. So, while women in Texas are being told they have no choice in whether or not they stay pregnant, women in the UK are finding that some injuries they sustain during childbirth are being considered a choice. How's that for consistency? So, this was brought to our attention by physio-led campaign organisation Pelvic Raw, co-founded by top woman and friend of the show Elaine Miller. Hello, Elaine. We love you. A member of the Chartered Society of Physiotherapies, Pelvic, Obstetric and Gynecological Physiotherapy Network, wowzers, that was a mouthful, had raised the issue on a discussion forum when a patient reported that Aviva refused a claim for treatments for stress incontinence resulting from a recent pregnancy. Pelvic Raw tweeted, We are outraged that a patient was refused payment for physio for stress incontinence. Reason, they had had a baby, so it's a consequence of their choice. Her husband's football-related knee injury Hmm. was covered, obviously. Well said, that woman. Pregnancy isn't always a choice, and injuries relating from childbirth never are. And yet, here we are, in a bizarre situation where your best chance of getting coverage for stress incontinence is if you give birth in the middle of a rugby scrum. But, as Elaine points out... The implications of incontinence can be wide-ranging and serious, she added. Pregnancy can be dangerous and delivery can cause lifelong changes to her body, her body being the woman. Stress urinary incontinence is very common and leaking in the first six weeks postnatally doubles her risk of postnatal depression. It also stops her from exercising and as we know, coronary heart disease is the most common cause of premature death of women in industrialised countries. A spokesperson for Aviva said, we have asked for the customer to get in touch with us directly so that she can review her claim in line with the specific details of the policy that she has. I'm guessing that customer may exercise her choice to Mm. use a different insurance company. I'm hoping so, at least. I just want to add one more thing, and that's that there is a solution to this that doesn't involve insurance companies at all, and that's for all women to exercise their choice to not have babies at all which would effectively wipe out all birth injuries within a generation and, oh, hang on. Yep, yep. What a load of fucking bollocks. What a load of swollen bollocks. What a load of swollen bollocks. While we're on the subject of Elaine, who we love and is great, if you want to do her and womankind a favour, give her a little follow on Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, she is at Gussie Grips. And on Instagram, she is at gusset underscore grippers. And she is brilliant and funny. And she will help you remember to do your pelvic floor exercises so you won't wee yourself anymore. And also, it will help her get lots of data to try and get a public health project funded, which is something she's trying to do at the moment. And look, let's get these projects funded. Let's show people how many women are affected by this and what a big problem it is and how how many of us are choosing to piss ourselves. Let's show them. (laughs) 
Hello, Hannah here. I'm joined on the Zoom by Chief Officer of the Cheshire Association of Local Councils, podcaster, writer and taker of none of your nonsense, Jackie Weaver. Thank you for joining me, Jackie. You're very welcome. I like the sound of her. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't think there's anyone who hasn't at some point in the last 18 months wondered if this is some sort of strange fever dream. And I'm guessing perhaps that feeling has been even more acute for you. Can you quite believe you are where you are? I think you even have to take it back a step from that. I mean, I'm not even sure that I am where I am. (laughs) Because I still do the day job and I am so not ready to let go of the day job, just in case, you know, the boss is out there listening anywhere. I kind of feel grounded in that. So everything else I do, I suppose it must feel a little bit like if you've just been chosen to go on a game show. Right. So in that moment, it's very exciting and, you know, surprising, and you get to see behind the scenes, which isn't a bit like you expect. And then the following day, although you've got a good story to tell, your life hasn't changed. Mm. You go back to the same life. And all the time, that's exactly what happens to me. I mean, I, I suppose, um, sorry, I don't want to make this an epic story, but I suppose the, the one that sticks in my mind most is when I did a promo piece for The Walking Dead. So in the morning, there was a, a team of about 10 people here including two professional zombies yet you do get professional (laughs) zombies apparently sorry walking dead i should refer to them as because they're slightly different i don't know what the difference is no idea apparently Apparently they're different and so i was in makeup at half past seven in the morning because i had an afternoon commitment i'll come on to that in a minute prosthetics makeup wig acting apparently i can act you forgot yeah add that to the um, the (laughs) intro as well apparently (laughs) i can act and it was kind of surreal it was you know like there was there was two photographers video as well that was separate and one of them had this obsession with chin up chin up chin up and the other one this obsession with chin down chin down (laughs) (laughs) so you never really could remember which one it was and where your head should be then we had lunch and tidied up makeup came off and at 2 30 in the afternoon i was back in front of my zoom screen doing a training session for 30 parish councillors on code of conduct yeah that is strange isn't it and all forgotten (laughs) <laughs> well, not, it's not forgotten, but the feeling of being in it is forgotten because mm. then I go back to being Jackie. Yeah, yeah, we find that sometimes. I've had a couple of sort of strange experiences on stage that we've done with Standard Issue, including one where we had Janine Garofalo, the American comedian and sort of Hollywood actress, yep. and Sue Pollard on stage with us at the same time. And the culture clash between those two women was just extraordinary. And to sit between the, in the middle of them, I kept thinking... This is genuinely the weirdest experience of my life. But now when I think about it, it sounds like I'm making it up because it, because it was so bonkers. That's right. So I spoke to Andrew Cotter last year, whose viral videos of his dogs, Olive and Mabel, drew attention from all over the world. And although Andrew Cotter wasn't famous as such, he has a very famous voice. You know, as a sports commentator, he's, you might say, fame adjacent You know, he's been around fame, so he has some experience of fandom. And even he said at times he found the experience to be quite stressful. And I wonder how that has been for you, someone who essentially just turned up at Hamforth Parish Council Zoom meeting and then found themselves the talk of Twitter. I guess the other thing is that for me, the two things were quite separated. I I guess not everybody kind of appreciates that. The way it's kind of presented, I don't mean falsely, but I mean there's an assumption Mm. that the meeting kind of took place the night before. Mm. Actually, the meeting took place mid-December and then it's mid-February. 
before, uh, sorry, beginning of February before this kicks off. So actually, I'm I'm well distanced now, mm. even from from Hanforth. You know, so much so that when they say I want to talk to you about it, I think, what on earth happened? <laughs> what did I miss? And her husband had some, you know, awful moment of, um, you know, something, and he's standing naked behind me on the screen <laughs> or something. I didn't even notice, you know, whatever. <laughs> He doesn't do that a lot. But that is literally um, the only thing that didn't happen in that meeting, almost, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> so I, I, I just didn't get it. You know, and, and you're kind of talking about something, kind of, um, I'm very much, a, I, I think, a, ple- a people pleaser. Mm. I think a lot of women are. And, you know, somebody's asking you a question and you're trying to give them what it is they want. You know, I, I don't mean make it up, but I mean, you know, that, that they want to know the story, so you tell them the story. They say, isn't this really exciting? And you say, yes, it's really exciting. You know, you're thinking, I have no idea why you think this is exciting. I, 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 I don't know why you yeah. are here. I want you to tell me why you're here. Why are you asking me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what I will say to you, Jackie, is I started off at local newspapers. And I've got a lot of friends who are journalists and almost all of them started off at local newspapers too. And yeah. one of the jobs at local newspapers is to go to cover local and small council meetings. And when everyone progresses to a stage when they don't have to do that anymore, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the words, thank God I never have to sit through another parish council meeting ever again. Because, I mean, I will concede they are very important. but they're local not ne- people. But yes. they're not necessarily relevant to you, and there can be huge stretches where they're unbelievably tedious and nothing happens. Yeah. But yeah, almost everybody I know that used to be a local reporter and said they would never, ever attend a meeting again actually sat down and watched that the whole way through it. So I think uh, it was quite extraordinary. I've done, well, reported 25 years in the sector. I've been to more parish councils probably than I've had hot dinners and because of my job no one ever rings me up and just says I just thought I'd tell you we're having a really fabulous day everything's going well (laughs) we just thought we'd share that with you because of course we're here to help we're here to solve your problems Mm. um advice etc so every phone call I have is I have this small problem I have this unique problem Mm. Okay, well, you might not have come across it before, but believe me, I might have. I guess my my kind of expectations when I go into a council meeting, and particularly when they've asked me to be there, is we have a problem. I'd never seen that level of aggression from anybody, Mm. ever. Well, that's not strictly true. Actually, my husband and I, I think, had PTSD. We were on a plane going to... Remember the old days when we used to go on holidays in places like Tenerife? I wonder if that level happened again, yeah. Yeah. So in the old days, my husband and I were going to to Tenerife, and and we obviously we are so dull. So we're sitting there, you know, quietly, just, you know, whatever people do on a plane, you know, thinking about... For me, it's like, oh, my God, I hope I'm not going to die. And for Stuart, it's, I'm going to go to sleep any minute now. We were vaguely aware of, of some kind of fuss behind which escalated really quickly we hadn't even taken off yet um end result being as they were trying to manhandle this man off the plane he hit the steward so hard that we watched his head bounce off the um cabin you know the um bulkhead and then um wrestled into the ground and stuff like that and and Stuart and i just sat there like this <laughs> if i make myself really quiet and don't move i will become invisible yeah <laughs> it'll all go away I guess for me, the terrifying thing was 
that in that moment, I suddenly realised where I was. Now, I know that sounds really stupid um, because, you know, I bought the tickets. I knew I was on an aeroplane. But I hadn't appreciated how difficult it would be to control somebody when it's like chess on a plane. Only one of you can move at a time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how do you physically restrain someone? Yeah. When you can't really kind of get two of you on one, you know, that kind of thing. And that was what I witnessed. And I was, I, I mean, both Stuart and I were absolutely terrified. Not so much because of what had happened, but the fear of what might happen. I want to talk to you about your book. You do have the authority here, which is out now. Tell me how that came about. It came about in the same way that all the very strange things that have happened over the last (laughs) six months came about. Somebody sent me an email and said, would you like to write a book? Mm. (laughs) I thought, what the hell would I write a book about? My first thoughts were, okay, well, I suppose I should write that book about parish councils that, you know, is like a manual that everybody Mm. wishes they'd had when they first started with parish councils. And then I thought, you know what, I can't be bothered. <laughs> and I know that sounds awful, and, and maybe I do the nation a huge disservice, but I just could not be bothered. It, it just seemed like, no, I, I'm, I'm genuinely not interested. I would have to say, Jackie, I wouldn't have read it as enthusiastically as I just read the book uh, that you did write. So. <laughs> I'm glad you read that enthusiastically. That, that's lovely. But, I mean, it would have had a place. You know, I mean, I think there is, um, you know, if anybody's out there who really has the passion for doing it, um, you know, I'll collaborate with you, but I just don't want to write it. And then I thought, well, actually, there is something I would like to write about. They came up with a different title. I get the title. You know, I can understand how that makes it easier for people to make the link between Mm. my name. And, you know, I would have have called it a little book of common sense. And it kind of feels like the the things that you wish your mum would say to you. Mm. or your big sister or something like that you know that that just kind of makes sense or tries to make sense of the bigger pictures out there that you just can't influence it's kind of giving you permission Mm. to let that go you say something in this book which pleases me enormously and that's that the most effective way to communicate with somebody is by using your actual mouth that's something i'm a firm believer in too but i think we're a dying breed jackie at least professionally, everybody wants it in an email. Mm-hmm. And I find, you know, any form of communication in which the word thanks can be perceived as sarcastic as well as enthusiastic, I find it quite a stressful way to communicate still. And I think one of the difficulties with email particularly, and email, hands up, stresses me out more than anything in the world. I have actually occasionally, quietly, I don't do that, <laughs> quietly shouted at the screen, please stop sending me anymore. <laughs> I used to have this kind of internal badge of honour of the screen had to be cleared every night before I went home. Right. Certainly when the the kind of Hanforth story broke, um, if I could get down to about five pages, that would be fine. Wow. Because there was just so many. So I've kind of adjusted a little bit, but I I still have that fear. I mean, I'm looking at now as we're talking and I can see there's one or two there that haven't answered yet. And I know that there's a kind of feeling there of I must get round to it. But one of the things with, with email is, it's very difficult to kind of mentally, for me, prioritise it. Mm. So, I, you know, I tend to take the first one first. Now, it's not the way I deal with anything else, yeah. you know, because I also talk in my book about, you know, the, the value of lists 
Um, and I certainly don't take a list and start at the top and work to the bottom because I do like my quick wins. But with email, I don't seem to be able to do that. So I can see one kind of, not at this moment, but I can see one a bit further down that really needs my attention, but I'm not allowed to answer that one. Right. Until I've done the ones above it. Yeah, that's like people get to push in the queue, though, a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. I agree with you on lists. And lists have to be written down on a pen and paper because otherwise you can't do that really satisfying strike out. Yeah. When you've done it, that's like really yeah. therapeutic to be like, done, tick, bins out, job yeah. done. For me, it is. I, I mean, I, I, I kind of assumed I wasn't the only person on the planet that mm, felt that no, way. No, I agreed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely love to, to write things down. I love that feeling of, of ticking them off. Mm. Also, for me, I, I kind of see writing something as a, I don't know, over-egging it a bit, but like a personal gift. Mm. So that if, if I've got something important to say or a thank you card, yeah, I'd never send a thank you card by email, no matter how funky you could make yeah. it. I will always write it. And not only that, but I'll take time to choose the paper I'm going to write it on and the pen I'm going to write it with. Yeah, I'm all about a nice pen. Yeah, I've got one or two. Yeah. Although you then end up with nice pen, but then sometimes card that's slightly shiny nice pen oh. won't write on it very well yeah and then my brain doesn't know what to do i'm like should i get a, a woman after my own heart yeah <laughs> i'm, I'm, I'm confused or leave write it two weeks in advance and let it dry on the sideboard <laughs> oh, i love it you've also started a podcast which is a fun listen you've had a lot of friends of standard issue on there laura lex drunk women yeah. solving crime I have to say you won me over when I heard you describing some forms of Lycra as a sex crime. And I thought, there's a woman after my own heart. Tell me about how starting a podcast has been for you. Because that is talking, that is communicating in the way that we like to communicate. Again, I, I mean, first of all, and, and I've said this to many people, please do not underestimate my ignorance. <laughs> so again, somebody approached me by email and said, would I like to do a podcast? I had absolutely no idea what a podcast was. Mm. Now, I've done about, I must have done nearly 20, I think. They're not all, you know, they're, they're kind of released over a period of time. I mean, we must have been about eight in before I realised that they were audio only. <laughs> and, of course, nobody thought to tell me because I <laughs> just assume I knew. <laughs> I'm thinking, Jackie looks lovely every time she turns up. She makes so much effort. <laughs> I mean, I probably would do anyway, yeah. but it wasn't just that. It was more about the, uh, you know, the positioning in the screen and, you know, I am getting to learn about these things. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of like, I feel a right fool. Well, some of them are, to be fair, some of them are. Some right. people record them and put them on YouTube. Um, we, we don't, as you can tell from my Today's Mad Hair. But no, we, we don't. But a lot, a lot of people do. And I sometimes forget to tell people and they pop up on the screen. And you know that you can see they've made an effort and they've tidied and... And I think, oh, no, I'm just going to not tell them that it, that it doesn't go up on video as well. And it started off as, again, yeah, somebody said we'd like to do one. And, and I guess when we first started talking, it, it kind of felt more serious. It, it felt like it was going to be a, a kind of Q&A, kind of continuation of what mm. I do in my day job, but kind of widening out the, the field. But as we did the first one... I think I naturally have a bit of a sense of humour anyway. And I guess that the... I can't remember who the first guest was. I think they were from the comedy circuit. So I think that that was kind of one of those things where we've fed off each other. Yeah. And I guess that the person that produces the um, the podcast for me kind of picked up on that because that's the kind of thing they do. 
um, and said, you know, actually, it is quite funny. You know, why don't we just see where it goes rather than try to make it serious or try to Mm. make it funny? And some of them are more serious. Yeah. I mean, they don't for one moment answer the big questions of the world, um, wish that I could. But sometimes they, you know, somebody will say something and, and it just goes to a more serious place. Mm. And other times, I mean, I remember a, a um, particular one about um, pigeons that was so funny. But actually, I got the producer saying, could we possibly get back on track? <laughs> <laughs> No, this is just so funny. I just want to see where it goes. Yeah, it's you went. Hilarious. You yeah. went down a, a little rabbit hole about Richard Herring's testicles as well. <laughs> well, what's not to love? Yeah, but actually, I think that's a really great choice by having people like Richard Herring who are on really solid ground themselves. You know, he knows how to get the best out of audio. Yeah, but but it was also kind of really um, interesting learning curve for me as well. Um, because of course, when when lot, there's so many things to say at once. Um, one is, I can't believe how these people have said yes. I mean, I, I say to the producer, "Do you blackmail them or what?" I mean, why would they say yes? You know, why would they give me their time? You know, so I, I think that's something that I, I I'm really touched by um, that they they would give half an hour of their time, an hour very often, um, to me to for something I want. The other thing is that I kind of, everybody isn't the same. I, I know that's a really obvious thing to say. I have like about five minutes before we, we actually start to mm. record to get to know them in some way and also get to know, I guess, how far you can push them. Yeah. I want to, I've had, I realise I've had you for a while, so I, I do want to... You're very easy to talk yeah, to. Thank you. I want to go back to local newspapers, um, so, okay. so many of which have been shut in the last decade which I do think is very bad news for local communities. And what I mean by that is where, where in the old days, debates about local issues used to take place in a much more stately way on a letters to the editors page, for example. And now we're in a situation where it's a lot of people shouting at each other on Facebook. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the pandemic has reintroduced a, a sense of good neighbourliness, I think, to the country. So I wonder how you think our local communities are doing, what sort of shape they're in from what you know of uh, of parish councils? It's a really good question. I, I mean, certainly with regard to the papers, um, I, I think Cheshire probably still has a fairly high number of local rags. Um, they they are well contributed to. Um, so I, I don't know that we're noticing, um, noticing that loss particularly. But in terms of communities, I, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of felt like one of the really positive things that came mm. out of COVID. You know, I've gone on a record many times on my day job talking about how actually the town and parish council sector and the community and voluntary sector are like, you know, poles apart. You would naturally think they were bedfellows, but they do not engage with each other. Never have done. You know, other than the parish council perhaps just giving them a bit of money. Right. You know, and then if you look a bit further up the um, the infrastructure chain to, um, you know, the support organisations for them, exactly the same. And often I think it comes from a competition for funding, which will never make happy mm. bedfellows. Um, but what we saw in the pandemic was actually them coming together. It's not a plug exactly, exactly but I'm happy to share it. If you have a look on our um, my day job website, which is chalk.org.uk, 
you'll see we've got three lovely little videos on there where the parish councils themselves are talking about the community work they're doing with the community, volunteers, etc. And I thought that was really heartwarming because it was a really good example of change. Because, as I say, historically, they, they just don't... They, they rub along together. Mm. I mean, they, they, work in pa- they, are. they work in parallel to each other, but they never cross-contaminate each other. And I thought that was something that was really positive and I think is something that has, um, has legacy. So in terms of um, what do we see in the community, I, I think that it kind of feels to me like we're pretty much back to normal. I, I don't know about if that's your experience. Although I am going to Guernsey in a couple of weeks' time, and quite frankly, I think it was easier for the Germans. (laughs) Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. You do have the authority here is available to buy now, and you can listen to Jackie Weaver has the authority on all good podcast platform providers. Yes. Smiling and nodding, Jackie. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed you can. I'm joined by Kat Lister, journalist and author of the new book, The Elements. Hi, Kat. Hello there. Thanks for joining us today. You are talking to us about your new book, The Elements, today. Could you please start by just telling us a little bit about it? Mm, Absolutely. So this book is about my, I would say, unique experience of grief as everyone experiences grief in their own individual way. Uh, What was unusual for me is that I lost my husband at the age of 35, which is actually um, incredibly young to lose a partner. The median age for becoming a widow or a widower in the UK in 2017 was 76. So there was a 41 year age gap between me and the majority. And I felt that really palpably when my husband died of a glioblastoma brain tumour in 2018. The reasons for writing this book was to explore the way that my grief really did inhabit and subvert me. And that was both psychologically and, and physically. There was this disassociation that happened in the summer of 2018 when he died. And I wanted to really almost bottle that very animalistic grief I mean, Joan Didion wrote her memoir and called it The Year of Magical Thinking. And I guess this is my year of magical thinking. And I, and I very much wanted to write it as close to that first year as possible and to convey the very dramatic symptoms that one can experience, um, but also chart the movement of grief throughout that first year and also document and explore the transformations that can occur when you're grieving in that way. It's an extremely beautifully written book. It's a very it's very powerful writing and it's a very, very personal story as all, you know, grief is a personal mm-hmm. story, of course. It feels to me almost like a literal howl of mm-hmm. grief. So I wondered how you feel now about about having shared that. Does it feel quite daunting? Um, Incredibly daunting, because it might sound ridiculous to say this, but I am a deeply private person. (laughs) And actually, I've written this book, but before this, um, I'd only written two essays about my grief previously. It just so happens that 
those two pieces had quite an impact. So it's what people remember. So I guess in order to write this book, I really had to sort of disconnect from those anxieties because my my intention in writing this was to be as honest as possible. I didn't want to edit myself and I wanted to be as open as possible because I believed that there are some aspects to grief that we're still not comfortable talking about and discussing. And especially in terms of being a young woman grieving, um, there were more physical aspects to grief um, that I wanted to explore too. Um, I wanted to explore the disconnection that, that occurred in my, in my body when Pat was ill um, and then after when he died. So there's a dual aspect to this book as well running through it. I'm grieving for this person that I've lost, but I'm also grieving for a body that I've lost as well. And that was very important to, to thread that through. You know, it, it did feel quite bold. I guess at the time of writing it, I, I tried not to think about people actually reading it, especially kind of family and friends. I wrote it very much for me, really, at the kitchen table during lockdown when I had no human contact at all. It was a very strange thing, but it actually felt also very seismic because I felt that at that time, everyone was grieving for something. Everyone had lost something, whether it was a person or you know a, a loss of what they saw as normality in their life um, and I really tapped into that I think it brought me back to those early months of, of my own grief it didn't feel unfamiliar to me those months of lockdown I would say the months of lockdown felt like grief to pick up on that point about being younger so we're sort of told quite a lot I think to normalize grief we must just accept it it's part of life but it's not normal though is it like grief is not normal it's not a normal feeling and I think also when that person is young yes. the the tragedy of it mm. feels mm. much greater in a way I wondered if you had any thoughts on that like is it different mm. it's unnatural one shouldn't lose one's husband at the age of 35 when they're 41 there's something about that younger age um when you see a life snatched away from you in that way that is incredibly traumatizing all bereavements are, are, are different I would say that there is a, a lifeline that connects all of them together I, 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 I honestly do believe that but I also think that you know losing my husband at 41 felt perverse mm. and that's the, that's the best word I could use to describe it it felt utterly perverse do you feel angry about yeah, yeah yeah and I you know I funnel that into the book and it pops up at, at different points that probably surprise the reader because I wanted to do that because I wanted to convey this the surprise emotions that took to, that took me off guard you know and I think a lot of our conversations around grief really always do come back to you know these these five stages of grief that we very uh, naturally go from denial to anger to bargaining depression acceptance that is there's some kind of linear chronological order to grieving you write about the i think it's your husband's wake and you've brought these like red stiletto boots and you're dancing in in the pub it's such a powerful image and then you talk about courtney love and the way she was kind of thought of after the suicide of kurt cobain and one of the points you make in the book is that of the many, many cultural representations of grief, so, so many of them are by men, and that you you didn't see 
yourself anywhere, partly because you were young, a young widow, partly because you're female, and that's sort of why you wanted to write the book. I wondered what you think the difference maybe is between, I guess, like male grief and female grief. I think there's a fetishization that occurs, and I felt that there was, especially with me being the age that I was and being a woman, and I certainly felt a, a whole host of gender stereotypes. And those gender stereotypes were in books I was reading, um, but also sort of culturally and socially just growing up. So I also mention watching the Scottish Widow adverts, yes. you know, in yeah. the 80s and 90s. And yeah. that, to me, really, I think, illustrates this very well, because she's mute, um, she's silent, she is impossibly beautiful and calm and dignified, you know, and cloaked in black, mm. leading us out of the maze. And I think there's something in that, you know, and that's why I juxtaposed Courtney Love uh, with Jackie Kennedy. And Jackie Kennedy is another version of the Scottish widow, you know. Yeah. We, we see her as this incredibly graceful and quiet woman who is able to almost perform her grief in a way that we find acceptable. And when I watch Courtney Love on stage at that festival, what I'm seeing is, is a woman more in tune with, with my grief, which was to kick out, to feel like I, I, I didn't want to be boxed in. I actually resented being called a, a widow. I, I, didn't, I didn't want that title. I didn't sign up to it. You know, when I first had to tick the widow box on my house insurance, you know, I was really angry about that. And it's because I see these certain stereotypes of how a grieving woman should behave. And, it, and that also feeds into my choices. My sartorial choices were not a surface thing, you know. And at the time, perhaps I would have sort of shrugged and said, you know, I, I bought these red boots because I, I felt like it. I probably would have pushed back. But actually, looking back retrospectively, I can say you know, that there is no reason why I would have bought those red boots. You know, there was there was something that I was trying to communicate at a time when I felt like I wasn't really being heard. And I, I didn't want to be put on mute. It's it's really interesting because obviously, yeah, you're right. Those Those kind of very dignified, very controlled, very sort of poised representations and you know the reality is grief is grief is pretty snotty actually like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's a hell of a it's lot of yeah a hell it's of a lot of snot in, in grief it's horrendous and it's it, it isn't sort of shiny like that I wondered did you ever feel like you you know I guess through friends or acquaintances or whatever that there was an expectation of you to behave in a certain way? Did you did your behaviour surprise people? Do you know what? I, I was incredibly lucky that my family and friends um, and those close to me really did seem to understand, understand me and understand that anything that I did or said at that time were, were what I needed to do. I think perhaps that I felt a sort of more wider judgment. And I guess there were sort of certain things that sort of niggled me, but that was more sympathy. I didn't want to be pitied. Yes, the head tilts. And that was, yeah, the head tilts. And I say, like, you know, there was a sort of point at a party where someone struck me like I was a sad horse. And I, I didn't want to be the sad horse. So that's when my behaviour might have sort of bucked against that. And so sympathy was a hard thing for me to process or to accept. 
And that also stemmed back to when Pat was ill as well, is that we both didn't want to be pitied and we didn't want to be othered by what was happening to us, despite it being pretty horrific. What was very important for us was to maintain that every day and to maintain our individuality. And that's the other importance with with becoming a widow is you almost feel like there's a your individuality has been slightly taken away there. There's this sort of homogenizing effect that it has. And whether that was around me at the time, I don't think that it was. I think it was just perhaps the pressure that I was putting on myself, but also, like we were saying, that the anger is, um, it can fuel you. And I think, especially in those early months, it, it fueled me to push back against what I perceived to be others' objectification of my grief. So the other thing you mentioned sort of relating to gender, the disassociation with your body and your grief for yourself. Mm. And of course, I guess in some ways when you are bereaved, you do, you are grieving for a version of yourself as well because you're grieving for your life with that person. But I wondered that, I guess that is perhaps a bit more specific to widowhood because obviously it's your partner and it's your it's sort of your future I guess Mm, mm, that you're mm. grieving I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about that that sense of grieving yourself and and grieving your body yeah and that was was is fundamental to the book and the section where I explore that um, in full is the third section which is called earth and it's divided between three chapters And I very much planned and envisaged that as a triptych of my body. And I wanted to chart the breakdown of my body, which occurred during a a long six-year illness. But also within that, there were other multiple griefs and losses that I experienced. And that was miscarriage and, and failed IVF. And so in that first chapter of that section, I explore the disconnection that occurred there and the disassociation that occurred there in in trying to make a new life and trying to ram my body, I say like a square peg into a round hole. To make a new life, I I say in the book to perhaps uh, face what I couldn't in everyday life, which was the impending death of my husband, which, you know, I always knew what this brain tumor was and how it would morph. I just didn't know when it would. And then through the further two chapters that follow in Earth, I explore in that first year the reconnection that occurs and the, the, the chapter that looks at masturbation. So it's um, I wasn't able to experience or feel orgasms for many years. So when those electrical currents started pulsing again, that felt incredibly miraculous and hopeful to me Um, so I explore that and I also explore sex for the first time um, after Pat died which I thought was fundamental and important to chart that I don't think it's been done in many grief memoirs of the past it's something that any woman of my age would experience um, and to edit that out um, was just not an option for me and I'm very 
I'm very proud of that section. Quite nervous sending it out into the world. I was quite nervous, like giving that to my mum for the first time. Actually, that, it's my mum's favourite section. So I, I always think, well, if my mum's all right with it, then everyone else can sod off if they've got a problem with it. What kind of feedback have you had relating to that section? I guess specifically because you're right. Of course, that is something you are going to experience. Mm. How have people mm. reacted to that? Have you had a lot of people sort of say to you like? oh no one's ever written about this before you know like I was really anxious but it's been really positive and um actually quite a few people have said that it's their favorite section and they think it's the the most vital and the most important which is brilliant because I I always perceived it in that way too I wouldn't say it was the easiest section to write Mm. but it certainly flowed onto the page in a way that none of the others did it was like that was all ready to sort of those words were ready to pluck out and put on the page and I think that it's the most pure actually of the book it's a very pure section it's very honest and I would say it's it presents all the parts of me and so it's been very moving to 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 release that actually into the world because I think there's a lot of power in that section. Off air we were talking about how it was actually sort of a bit difficult for you to find a, a publisher for this book yes yes and it's it's doing quite well Kat so you know <laughs> that's a big you know flip of the birds to, to the people who thunk it yeah <laughs> who, who didn't want it and are you surprised that it's been received as well as it has been did you Incredibly. Did, did you expect it to be as as big as it has been uh no it did not it was difficult placing this book you know I'm not ashamed to say there was a point before I found my publisher my amazing publisher that I was crying on the floor of my living room with my best friend Zoe giving me a cuddle because I just thought uh it wasn't it wasn't going to get published and I was you know I had such a yearning to write this um that for me just getting it down and and holding it as a powerful book in, in my hand was enough so to see it you know go out into the world and 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 to have all this feedback and people reading and and interacting with it um and what is absolutely just feels uh so magical and amazing is you know people are coming to me with their stories and saying you know I I felt this too and I had I had these thoughts too and you know writing this at the kitchen table you know you have all these weird what you consider to be weird thoughts you know that that make you highly unusual and actually writing this book I realized I'm not not quite as weird and unusual as I thought I was you know that actually there's this commonality here and and that includes all forms of loss whether that's whether you've lost a a loved one or whether you've just gone through anything that's made you feel disconnected from the world around you and you're trying to find a path back to yourself which sounds incredibly cliched but you know that's what this book was supposed to do you know it was supposed to speak to anyone who's feeling lost Um, we're told that we have this map that takes us from A to B to C in life and you know this is what happens when all the maps are burned and you're trying to find your way back so I feel incredibly thankful and fortunate to have this book on my table now and and to be able to to talk to all these readers who are finally reading it massive massive congratulations to you it is a beautifully written book it's a very powerful book as i said before it is published by icon and it is available now 
at all good bookshops and indeed online, I assume. Go get it. Go get it. <laughs> Kat, where can we where can we follow you to keep up to date with what you're up to? You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Madam underscore George. Um, so yes, I am tweeting. <laughs> and that's the best place for you to keep up with the book and, and events that I'm doing. But thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to talk with you about it. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we throw a 180 in the name of women's sport. Why was it called Bullseye? Is it just more catchy than Triple 20? Because Triple 20 is the highest score. I mean, my maths isn't great, but that is 10 points more than a Bullseye, right? I'm talking about darts, ovos. Specifically, I'm talking about Fallon Sherrick, who is doing quite well for herself. For a start, she's got her own line of darts now, I discovered while researching this week's JOTB. For a mere 77.95, you could own a set of Dynasty Steel Tip Darts Fallon 3s. They come in pink gold, because she's a girl, and they look quite sexy. But to be honest... I've nothing to compare either them or indeed the price point to, so I won't dwell on those. Instead, let us offer both commiserations and simultaneously huge congratulations to Fallon Sherrick for becoming the first ever woman to reach a televised PDC final. That follows on from becoming the first woman to win a main draw match at the PDC World Championships last year and going on to progress to the third round. At the Nordic Darts Masters, which is this contest, the Brit had a 6-3 lead but ended up losing 11-7 to three-time world champion Michael van Gerwen. It's nonetheless an incredible turn of events and I spoke to Fallon for the podcast a few years ago and she spoke at the time about her hopes that women would become more visible in darts and have the opportunity to compete for better prizes. And here she is now literally piercing the glass ceiling with her steel tip darts and I think that is bloody excellent. Moving on, big news in the world of international football and not just that the new Lionesses boss Serena Wiegmann used to have to pretend to be a boy to play football in her native Netherlands as a ute. Literally the plot of 1944's National Velvet but without horses. Tremendous news instead from football that it was announced last week that England is to host a new international women's football tournament next year. The round-robin tournament will see four countries, including England, Germany and Spain, compete with a fourth national team yet to be announced and will take place in February 2022, the same month as the She Believes Cup. I can only hope that they give it an equally inspiring name like girls can do whatever they want as I've recently seen any number of slogan t-shirts decree. Good to know. Thanks. Also, they can't do whatever they want. They can't, like, kill people. Anyway, this is excellent news and takes place ahead of the 2022 European Championships, which I think is delayed from this year, but I do start to get very confused about it all, to be honest. Nonetheless, a good opportunity for the Lionesses to get some practice in and another opportunity, we assume, you know, pending further COVID awfulness, for fans to get out and see some women's football as well as at the Euros, which will also be here in England. 
I should also mention that we beat North Macedonia 8-0 last week, which was an okay start for Wigman at the helm, but I'm not going to dwell on that either, because we're not America, and I don't think you should take any huge pride in thrashing a little team when you are allegedly one of the great footballing superpowers of the world, because there is a special place in hell reserved for those people, just FYI. We had 48 shots on goal, 18 of which were on target, so you could ask why we didn't score 10 more, but I won't. Shrugs. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next week with more women's sport when I'm talking to boxing legend Ramla Ali. So hit subscribe right now if you want to be sure you don't miss that. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, which film are we questioning the historical accuracy of its portrayal of... Portobello Road. Well, this week we watched 1971's Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which was released in October 1971. And it's surprisingly hard to find now that Disney has its own streaming yeah. service. I mean, there used to be a time in the 1980s where there was only four channels, and if you just turned your telly on, Bedknobs and Broomsticks would appear. Now you have to root around trying to find it, and they call that progress. If you find yourself asking which one is Bedknobs and Broomsticks, well, it's the one based on a book by a woman about the kindly but no-nonsense single woman who takes on the care of some children and, with the help of an erstwhile friend, travel to an animated world. Hang on, isn't that Mary Poppins? (laughs) Well, quite. In fact, the similarities between the two films is among the reasons why Bedknobs and Broomsticks didn't get made until 1971 despite the rights being acquired in the 1950s. It also stars David Tomlinson, better known to several generations of youngsters, as a certain nanny's employer, and has a cast-off Poppins tune, The Beautiful Briny. But did Mary Poppins ever stop the invasion of England by the Nazis? With just a load of historical armour and substitutionary locomotion, did she fuck? So, the plot, which is daft and often incoherent, but rather delightful... During World War II, eccentric spinster slash trainee witch, and aren't those two things so often the same thing? Well. Eglantine team Price, who is played by Angela Lansbury, reluctantly takes in three evacuees slash 40-year-olds trapped in the bodies of youngsters from London. And while it's never explicitly said that their parents are dead, everybody behaves as if they are throughout, and they are never mentioned, which is a bit odd. Miss Price is disappointed to find that her open university for witches is shutting down, especially since she's just one spell away from being useful to the war effort. When she and the children travel to London using a double bed, like a village fundraiser from the 1970s, they meet her tutor, Professor Brown, who turns out to be a con artist who's been finding the spells in half an old book he found in the house he's squatting in. Now, I don't think this was ever a surprise that he was a con artist, given that he actually had instructions on how a witch could ride a broomstick in a ladylike fashion, and I don't think any witch in the history of witchdom has ever thought of that. Their attempts to locate the other half of the book and the spell it contains take them on a whirlwind bed tour where they meet Bruce Forsyth and visit a preview of the Disney film Robin Hood, only to discover (laughs) that they had the answer themselves all along. But hold up! The Nazis have invaded... And after being locked in a castle with the kids, Miss Price manages to raise a magical army and they send the Bosch back to mainland Europe with a flea in their ear. 
where they then go on to slaughter a load of innocent people, presumably. Still, it's a kid's film. The end. Jen, you've never seen this before, right? No. Is Bruce Forsyth in it? Did you not notice that Bruce Forsyth was in it? Is that the guy who's like, who comes at him with a knife? Yeah. Is that Bruce Forsyth? And actually, he says something in it. He says the name of someone. Mm. And then he says... He wants to see you. Yeah. And my head actually went to see you nice. I just couldn't, I couldn't bear it being not said. Like after Bruce Forsyth said to see you, I had to say it. I did not notice that was him at all. I was too busy reeling from the multicultural um, section of Portobello Road that would not have existed in 1941. But um, I think it would have existed in 1941, wouldn't it? I don't think so. Do you not think no. that a huge amount of people that would have been based here because of whatever role they were playing in the war effort? I think they would not have been here particularly until a fair bit later. But uh, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's where like everyone went. I don't know. Obviously, that part of London is famously became very multicultural in the 50s. I think it's a touch early, but... Who knows? I wanted to actually look it up. I was so confused by the multicultural section. But anyway, let's not dwell on it. It goes on for ages, though. It does go on for a really, really long time. But that aside, I mean, what can I say about this film? I've never seen it before, despite it being on every day on (laughs) terrestrial TV for like 10 years. I think I always thought it was a shit Mary Poppins, but I actually haven't seen Mary Poppins either. Really? Yeah, which is bizarre, because my dad loves... God, what's her name? Julie Andrews. Yeah, my dad loves her. Like, went to see The Sound of Music, he will tell you, three times at the cinema as a boy in Somerset, as if that's like somehow relevant. But yeah. That's interesting, because my dad often claimed... And we didn't do it, so I hope it wasn't a serious request. But my dad often claimed that he wanted the words he never saw the sound of music written on his grave. Stone. <laughs> Which is weird, because I feel like your dad and my dad probably would have gotten on quite well, you know. Anyway, I thought it was delightful. I thought it was really charming. I mean, like, I'm sure there's lots and lots wrong with it in many ways. I mean, they call Germans the Jerry, for God's sake. But, like... The first time they refer to them, they call them the Nazis, um, which is what Cotton Hill calls them in King of the Hill, the Nazis. And also the Crack Fox, I think, says Nazis. Um, I was very confused. Like, when when it started, I was like, why the fuck are there Nazis in this? This is a bit much. I was very confused by it. Also confused by it being... Made in 1971, but appearing to be older than it is. It's funny, though, isn't it, that at the start, it tells you this story is from the dim and distant and not really remembered past. And you're like, you're fucking kidding me. We're in 2021 now and nobody's forgotten about the Second World War. Yeah, but it's also got the fucking Bayo Tapestry, confusingly, in the opening credits. I was a bit like, I don't know what this shit is about. This is... So you go from like... There's Bayo Tapestry with witches in it. I mean, I didn't even register that, so I've probably just taken my codeine or something, but it went straight from, like, maybe that's why it was so charming. It went straight from, like, the Bayo Tapestry to Nazis, and I was like, I'm very confused. Anyway, the kids, the kids. I'm not sure the little girl says a word throughout the whole film, but the little boy. She went on to be in EastEnders, apparently. Did she? Yeah, apparently she plays Lucy Speed's mum. 
I'm not sure that she did very much, to be honest. But right. I think she might have been a fairly fleeting character, Lucy Speed's mum. But yeah, she doesn't say a lot. But the two boys... I mean, I know you've got things to say about this, Hannah, but like... Bloody hell! Oh, bloody loved them! The pitch of that little yeah. one's voice is incredible! They are incredible. They are. Let's not forget that the words, what's this got to do with my knob, is just the most amazing thing what's that's ever been said What's this got to do with film. my knob? <laughs> but it's the fact it's said in that voice that makes it totally and utterly priceless. Yeah, they're amazing. I love them. Those must have been their authentic accents as well. Well, they are British, so yeah, I mean... Also, on the subject of accents, and you've mentioned already the preview of Robin Hood, the Disney film, because obviously King John is very much alive and well in this film. Yeah, and the bear. Yeah, and the bear. But apparently King John is a pirate who also has an American accent. It's a very confusing accent that he's yeah. got there. But yeah, I think the, the boys are uh, amazing in it, especially that little one. It's just... yeah. There's a really excellent bit where the little one, and I wish I could remember his name now, but I know his real name, his surname is Snart. The, the person who plays him, his Good nickname name. is Snart. Liz Lemon in 30 Rock yeah. is a word that she uses for when you sneeze and fart at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's a bit where he finds this book, right? And he says to the brother about how there's all these animals that are like live like humans, and the older brother says, no, it's not. And he goes, look, see, there's pictures of them in this book. And I just thought, he'd do really well on Twitter, I think. That kid, if were the internet in existence, he'd have been storming the capital, wouldn't he? Yeah. They have a soccer match, which is great, obviously. I think that's brilliant, actually. That's the best thing in it. Yeah, no, it was good. Yeah. It, I, I welcomed I welcomed the soccer match. I enjoyed it. The gorilla it. goalkeeper is amazing in that. I just love the I just loved everything about about that um sequence to be honest. Um I love the fact that it was King John. I love the fact that it was a soccer match. I love the fact that like you, you man there had bec- like become a referee. It was all just wonderful. I enjoyed it very much indeed. Are you annoyed that your parents have never let you watch this before now then? Oh, I don't know cuz like mate, I don't know. You tell me. Was it the coding talking, Hannah, or did I genuinely have feelings of warmth for this film? (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's really charming. It's the first time I've seen it since I was a kid. Mm. I mean, obviously, I've seen it loads of times as a kid, but it's the first time I've seen it since. I mean, it won an Oscar for Best Effects, which Mm a lot of the way through it, I kept thinking, what, there is no effects. It's basically Angela Lansbury in a blue, like, screen behind her, like, pretending to be... But actually, the bit at the end when all of the yeah. um, the stuff animates, all of the and he turns into a rabbit. Yeah, that I thought actually they're not they're quite good those effects. And there is an nineteen seventy one. Obviously, a, a long like animated sequence. Although that's not really an effect, is it? That's just a. An, I don't know. Maybe it is because they're in it. I don't bloody know. Um, yeah, I thought it was all right. For the effects. weirdest thing in it is that cat. That cat manages to not look real, even though I'm pretty sure it is Yeah, real. no, I had the same thought. Is that cat real or not? And it does, you're right, he needs a damn good brush, that cat. Bloody hell. And possibly feeding or yeah. stroking or yeah. anything. I think it was a real cat. It did have a bit of a look of Salem from um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch about it, but I think it was probably real, just in need of a bit of love and, uh, and attention. It's just the enduring appeal of Angela Lansbury, isn't it? Angela Lansbury is terrific. She's yeah. great. Everything she touches turns to gold. Yeah. Mrs. Teapot. <laughs> the murder she yeah. wrote. 
Can't remember her name. Yeah. Jessica Fletcher, that's her name. How could I forget that? She's really great in um, the old version of Death on the Nile as well. The Euston off version of Death on oh. the Nile. Yes, the daughter gets... The girl, Carrie, gets a lot less to do in this than the boys. And in fact, she also gets told off. When they all wander off, she's the one that gets told off because she's supposed to be the responsible one, yeah. despite the fact that she's not the oldest one. Yeah. And Brown, I think you know, is probably a bit of a sexist. In fact, at one point he says that when will women learn to file properly, which really got on my nerves. And then I realised I can't find a fucking hammer. So maybe he's, <laughs> maybe he is correct. Yeah, I thought that stuff at the end was actually really good, despite the fact that it's really stupid because they obviously, they don't even catch the Nazis. They just drive the Nazis away, ultimately donking someone on the head or scaring them. I know it's a kid's film, but, you know... Even Kid Hannah would have said, aren't they just going to go off and kill loads of people now in some other country? I do think they got the timing a bit wrong because it is quite long. It's two hours, although it didn't really feel like two hours. Apparently, yeah. I read that they cut they cut it from like two hours 13 or something. Yeah. And originally when it was put out of the cinemas, there were, it had like uh, le- another 20 minutes less in it. And most of that came out of the Portobello Road scene, apparently. I mean, they could have they could afford to have lost a bit more of the Portobello Road scene, in my opinion. But yeah, so it did go on a little bit long, and I did think they had the timing a bit wrong because it was kind of like the opposite of. I think I've spoken about this on the podcast before. The final Twilight film, where basically they build up this whole thing, the whole fucking trilogy, which they obviously cut into two like so they make it four for the purposes of flogging a cash cow that is the film trilogy or four parts i think the hunger games did that as well yeah and the uh the last harry potter film i think was split in two as well it kind of makes sense doesn't it why not eke it out um except that the last twilight book is shit so the film is even so what they basically do is they set the whole thing up that there's going to be like a massive battle at the end and then they all get together for the battle and the battle in the book uh spoiler alert um in the book they just go oh should we go home then because i don't think any of us are actually that upset with each other and they go yeah we actually let's do that let's just go home then and obviously they've realized we've made people go through like four films like we can't have that be the end so they do this thing where they have this like gruesome brutal like battle and then it kind of goes like wayne's world like this is what could happen if we have a big fight should we not have a big fight should we all go home we'll do that then off we go it's kind of like the opposite of that it's all over very quickly. They don't really bother to have a fight. They kind of just go, let's go then. Let's just, off we pop. What I did love about that was, though, they uh, you, you've got, like, knights, you've got, like, cavaliers, yeah. you've got all sorts of people, like, involved. And then when they pop up, the kids and Tomlinson, when they pop up, yeah. he's wearing, like, a sort of George Washington <laughs> style hat. And I thought I would totally do that. Yeah. If that was me, I just totally would have taken the hat. Oh, yeah. I think I probably would have gone for a Cavalier's hat, nice big feather going out the back of it. Not that I was on the side of the Cavalier's, but it is the best hat. I wasn't not on the side of the Cavalier's, just throwing it out there. Poor Charles I, they did him dirty. Anyway, um, Oliver Cromwell was a prick, and you as an Irish person. Come it, it, on, is, it is the, uh, the, the Germany-Argentina game, you just don't know who to support. <laughs> yeah. Also, the Cavalier's just had much better outfits, but anyway... Mm. 
I was kind of like, when's this finishing? Let's have a look. And it said that there were like 11 minutes remaining. And I was like, but they're nowhere near a resolution yet. It just, it happens Mm. very quickly, that last bit. And then he goes off to war and they're like, oh, is he going to be their new dad? And I'm just left thinking, where are their actual parents? (laughs) Where are their actual parents? They go to London and they they never think she would just pop in and see mum and dad. Maybe they died in the Blitz. It's not mentioned though, is it? No. It is weird. Angela Lansbury, can we just discuss? Angela Lansbury has looked the same age forever. Mm. She is timeless yeah. and indeed ageless, but she has looked yeah. like she was a lot older than perhaps she was forever. Yeah. It makes no sense. Maybe she is a witch. Maybe, yeah. Okay, so enough of our waffle. Mm. Jen? Rated or dated? Interesting, because it's so clearly dated in so many ways, but what a charming watch. I enjoyed it very much. I, I'm going to agree, yeah. I literally can't believe you've never seen Mary Poppins, though, because if you like this, you're going to fucking love Mary Poppins, because Mary Poppins is actually a better film. Interesting. Interesting. Mary Poppins always seems like something that I was maybe threatened to watch. The songs are definitely better in Mary Poppins. There's some absolute bangers in Mary Poppins. Dick Van Dyke as well. Mm. Yeah. So, Jen, we've had a little trip down children's memory lane. Well, for me, anyway. Where are we going for a wander next week? I think we're wandering into sort of like around my adolescence, possibly early 20s time. I'm not entirely sure. Um, When was it? 1996? We are going to watch the First Wives Club. Ooh. I've never seen that before. I have seen it before. I think hilarity is going to ensue. <laughs> one way, one way, one way or, or the other. other. <laughs> yeah. Standard issue for all women.